So enough of this talking already. i got preaching to do here. <laughs> Come on. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm going to ask you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Um, I know normally you would think we're going to Romans because we've been in it for like 10 gazillion years, but um, it, it's Easter week, right? So Ephesians chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, and if you don't, you can follow along on the screen. Maybe, maybe you have it on your phone or your iPad. Um, but if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back for you in the back table. Be sure and grab one on your way out this morning. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word, so don't hesitate to take one of those. We're going to jump into it in just a minute. I want to catch you up on a couple details that you might find in your bulletin and uh, related to next weekend. On Good Friday, when we get together, there's two services, notice, one at 5 and one at 7. So choose which one you want to be here, but don't miss that. That'll be a great opportunity for you to worship together as a church. And on Easter morning, all three services occur on Sunday. Instead of Saturday night and two on Sunday, we're doing all three on Sunday morning. So if you look at that insert or maybe the information in your bulletin, it's going to say 8, 9.45 or 11.30, not 11. So if you show up at 11, you're just going to have to wait a little bit. Parents especially want to note that there's um, an insert in the bulletin for you. If you bring in your kids, there's a great program in all three services next weekend for the children downstairs. Just something special that the children's ministry put together for kids if you want them to be part of that. So um, one other detail, and you're going to see some photos up on the screen. We wanted you to know about the missions teams that are going to uh, different countries. These photos represent the groups that that are going out on our behalf. Uh, we've got teams in later part of April after Easter going to Mexico. And then we've got another team going to Haiti. And then we have another group that are going to West Virginia. And they're all going to work in different missions that are established, like the, the West Virginia crew are going to serve with Samaritan's Purse who are helping to do some restoration in a town that was destroyed by a flood that took place last fall. You might remember that. So pray for these groups. So you see their pictures. I want you to just go up to them if you know these individuals and let them know you're praying for them. But we're going to pray for them right now, and we're going to pray for the text that we're stepping into. So would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you with our, our uh, hearts just bowed before you in humble recognition that you're going to speak because your word is going to be used and it's your word that's alive, it's active, it's sharp. You said it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So we understand that you have the ability to pierce very deeply this morning and to open up our heart to things that we might not normally open it up to. But God, I ask for each one of us that have gathered here together, those who are watching online right now, that you would use this time to speak to us I pray, Father, specifically for those who are going on these mission trips, God, that you would go before them as they leave, that you would have all the details in place for them as they arrive, Father, that their work for the kingdom uh, would be worthy of your name, and that they would do things that would serve and please you. And Father, we pray especially that you would bring them back safely, but that you would use them mightily while they're there. God, we ask now that you would use the power of your word to shape our hearts and, and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray for this in his mighty name. Amen. I ask you to uh, look at Ephesians 1.18 with me, but at the same time, I'm going to give you some other references in a minute to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's go to Ephesians first. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart, and he's talking to believers here, obviously, right? He's talking to those who believe in Jesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? 
toward us who believe. I really want to latch on to that last part this morning, the surpassing greatness of his power to those of us who believe. I, I really pray you get a hold of this. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, that they would really grasp. He says, even though it's not measurable because it's surpassing greatness, it's hard to put a measuring rod on this thing. You have something available to you, even though there isn't a measuring rod big enough. Now, here's where I'm going to ask you to translate uh, over with me to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, the way we're going to link Ephesians chapter 1 this morning is with Jesus descending down into Jerusalem for what's known as Passion Week, the last week of his life. The weekend before he was crucified, he's found in a city just outside of Jerusalem about seven to nine miles away. And there's a very special event that's been taking place there. If you're a church person, this is really familiar to you. If you're, if you're new to church, I, I pray that you get a fresh perspective on who Jesus is. Matter of fact, I hope that for all of us. As we move into this scene, we're looking over the shoulders of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the few stories that's recorded exactly the same in all four of the Gospels. But they each have a different perspective on it. It's called the Synoptic Gospels for a reason because they look at it through a specific lens. Imagine someone at an accident scene on one corner, but someone else at the same accident scene on another corner. They see it from different angles. That's what you find when you come into Matthew chapter 21 or when you turn your Bible into Mark chapter 11, or Luke 19, or John chapter 12. So you choose which one you want to be at, but keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 1 because we're going to go back to that. Here's the context. Jesus has been at a dinner party, and the dinner party is being held in his honor. People are celebrating because of what has happened earlier. They came to go to a funeral there was a massive crowd that showed up for the funeral of a person who was greatly loved in the community by the name of Lazarus. And Lazarus has two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha made all the arrangements for the funeral to take place. But Jesus shows up on the scene and everything changes. This guy who is a very, very close friend of Jesus was in the tomb four days. Scripture says putrefying in the ground. He was buried in the tomb, and people didn't even want Jesus to remove the stone because they said, there's a stink by now. Surely it smells because he's been in the tomb for four days. Now, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead, and word spreads very, very quickly. And so we find as we go to John chapter 12, this perspective on the story. John writes this, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now understand, the messianic hopes are extremely high. Not only because of what Jesus has just done, but because of what he's been doing over the previous three years. And people in the community and in the Roman Empire have heard about what Jesus has been doing. Now this is upon the, the cusp of Passover week. It's the very beginning of what they celebrate. We think of things that we have high energy around. I don't know if we can quite get our mind around the energy that's poured into Passover week. So maybe think with me of spring break at the very beginning, mixed with maybe the energy that's around the final four. Maybe if you were in Phoenix last week for watching the final national playoffs of men's college basketball, combine all of that energy together. You might be getting close to what's going on at Passover. People are on vacation. They've got a whole week ahead of them. 
They show up in Jerusalem expecting to be part of a Passover celebration, and they hear that Jesus is nearby. Now, put perspective with this. The the population of Jerusalem in the first century was known to be about 160,000 people. However, during Passover week, historians tell us that it swelled to 2,600,000 people. Where are you going to put everybody? There are not enough hotels to get them all in. They're camping every place that they can possibly find to hang out. And they've got nothing to do except wait for the festivities to begin. And they hear that Jesus is in town, that he's not very far away. And so they show up and they're looking through the windows trying to see Jesus and this guy that he's just raised from the dead. Now, a day later, they hear that Jesus is starting to move towards the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, picture Jerusalem this way. Jerusalem is 17 miles away from Jericho, and from Jericho to Jerusalem is a 3,000-foot incline. So by the time you get to the crest of the hill at Jerusalem, there's an area in which Jesus is making his way over this hill, and he can look out over the city. It's a spectacular view, I'm told, in which he's 300 feet above the Temple Mount looking down upon the temple and can see the city spread out before him. This is the point in which this massive crowd merges together. They hear that Jesus is coming. So nobody's hanging out at Chick-fil-A. Nobody's at Bigby. Nobody's at Eastwood Town Center because the streets have emptied out and they're all moving in a massive wave of humanity towards Jesus. Plus the people who are at the funeral, the large dinner party, they're right behind him. And he's got his followers, his disciples. And I'm thinking Mary and Martha and Lazarus are probably there too. So the people, according to John 12, have heard that Jesus is coming and they want to meet him. So look with me on the screen at Luke 19 because Luke gives us this view. He says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Um, Maybe you've pictured this before, but we talk about rolling out the red carpet here in the United States when we want to receive a dignitary, where in their world in the first century, they would literally take off the cloak from their back and lay it on the street, allowing the person who was considered to be the monarch or the superior person to step on their clothing, meaning this, we're placing ourselves in submission under you. Go ahead and walk on our clothing. We bow to your authority. That's what you see them doing in this moment. Now, we get another view from Mark. Mark says in chapter 11, verse 8, you see this on the screen, they're spreading leafy branches, meaning they cut down palm trees. They're removing the branches so that they wave their banner before him in celebration. There are a lot of palms around Jerusalem. That's, That's where they get them from. But Matthew's got another view. Matthew tells us the people begin shouting something in the midst of this. Look with me on the screen at this one, Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And this crowd's got a whole new level of energy. It's amped up because they realize the political turmoil that they're in with Rome over the top of them. And they recognize the power of this individual. He can raise people from the dead. Let's go back into the story from John's view because he gives us a detail that the others don't include. John 12, verse 13 says this, They began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King 
of Israel. So you got a massive group shouting, Jesus for president, Jesus for president, Jesus for president, right? The problem is, they've already got a king. His name is Caesar. And he doesn't like to share his title. And he's got soldiers in place who want to make sure that his title is not shared. So you've got this group of people who number in not the tens of thousands, but the hundreds of thousands, shouting, Jesus, the King of Israel. And you can't blame them. Because blind people can see. And deaf people can hear. And lame are walking. And he's fed people with loaves of bread by the thousands. And he stopped storms. And he's made water into wine. And now you've got a dead guy walking around who is putrefying in the ground, who's now full of life. You can't blame them a bit. So as Jesus heads into the capital city, they know nothing can stop him. He can speak a word and Pilate will evaporate but he doesn't choose to do that. So in their mind, they're imagining, will we see the power that destroyed Egypt? Are we gonna see fire from heaven? Is he gonna bring it with the angels and they're gonna sweep in for battle? See, what's really, really clear in this moment is this crowd wants a king, but they want a king of their own design. They want designer Jesus. Designer Jesus is the Jesus that fits your agenda. The one who fits your intention. See, my experience is this, and I think it's true in 2017. Jesus is totally cool as long as he does what I expect God to do. As long as he is who I think he is. And in their mind, they need to be saved from political turbulence in their country. And so, because it's their agenda, they believe it's God's agenda. So what starts out as a reception is actually in seed form, a rebellion, a rejection. It's just going to take a week to play out. They will curse him because by the time you get to John 19, you see these same individuals saying, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. We don't want him. He's not our guy, but that's later in the week. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Don't worry about that, okay? So let's jump back into the story. So you've got this huge crowd, and they're escorting Jesus, and the cheer is deafening. And somehow, in the midst of the crowd, over the top of their shouting, you find these curmudgeons who have arrived on the scene. And there's always spoilers, right? So the Pharisees are the spoilers in this case. And they show up and they say, tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop saying that. Teacher, rebuke them. Look at me on the screen at Luke. Luke's view is this, Luke 19.39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they're the officials on the field of play, right? And they throw down the penalty flag. The yellow flag is out there. They say, time out. This is infuriating. They're praising you like you've got the power of God. Rebuke them. And it's in this moment that Jesus' response is absolutely fascinating. He reaches beyond the chaos, beyond all the turmoil that's going on around him. And he reminds every one of us in one simple phrase who he is. Luke 19, verse 40. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these stones become silent, 
If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Have you ever seen a stone scream before? Thinking not. I haven't. I've made a stone scream before. I put it in a flame in a burning fire when I was a teenager and it got burning hot, like super hot. You wouldn't want to touch it and then dumped it in some cold water. It makes an incredible searing sound, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, these stones will scream if these people remain silent. Well, first of all, here's what I've landed on because I've examined this passage for years throughout my life. And it wasn't until these last two weeks as I was preparing for today that I've actually seen what Jesus was actually talking about. The first of all thing I've landed on this is, is because he's God, I can believe all that he says. Amen, church? Because he's God, I can believe everything that Jesus says. So I'm going to take him at his word. So there's an implication going on here. He's telling the Pharisees, the rocks have more intelligence than you. This bag of rocks can see who I am. Even a boulder understands my power. Why this analogy, though, of rocks screaming? Why use it this way? Understand that Jesus' statement here is an evaluation of reality. Here's one of four reasons I landed on why he says this. One reason specifically is because everything that you know in your world is created by him, for him, and through him. Scripture says it's created even to him. Look with me on the screen. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So this means this morning, church, you exist. I exist for the glory and the praise of God. Scripture says that even the trees of the field clapped their hands in praise of him. Isaiah eleven fifty five. Even the trees of the field. So that plays into the second reason. Jesus is saying, if the crowds will withhold, there's something going on here. If the crowds become quiet, there's going to be a response. Why is he referring to that that way? There's a loyalty issue going on if we fail to praise God. Because he's deserving of the praise, if you don't praise him, Jesus is saying there's going to be reaction from nature because God is a God of justice, not a God of injustice. And justice demands that you are faithful to the truth. Let me lean back into the Old Testament and into an ancient writer by the name of Habakkuk. And he is a Jewish prophet. And this Jewish prophet recorded what you see on the screen, Habakkuk 2.11. He says, surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. What's he talking about? He's writing in chapter 2 about a man who's done things within the confines of his home, within the walls of his own home. When he thinks nobody sees it, nobody's aware of what's going on, Habakkuk says, even the stones of the foundation and even the rafters in the ceiling, they're witnesses to what you do. That, that's part of the analogy that's being used here. So Joshua takes it up a step, and he says in chapter 24, when he's talking to the children of Israel, hey, you guys, let's roll a big boulder up here because God has just done something powerful on their behalf, and God's word is powerful, and God made a commitment to them. So watch what Joshua says in chapter 24. 
Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us. Isn't this interesting? For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. So even the things that you don't think know what's going on know what's going on according to God. So I'm looking at the third reason then. First, number one, and number two play into this third reason. Because Jesus is God, Jesus will get his due because he's God Almighty. Scripture declares this very clearly. Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted him. You just sang about this, church. God highly exalted him, Philippians 2.9, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, and I did not capitalize this, God did this. At the name of Jesus, say it with me, church, every knee will bow. He goes on to say, every tongue's gonna confess, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning even rocks bow to his majesty, his glory, and his power. Think about this. Those same rocks that Jesus was talking about they're still there in Israel. They're still waiting for the return of the king. We're told that everything on planet earth bows to his majesty. So with all that in mind, let me circle with you back around to Ephesians chapter 1. Don't too quickly escape from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but go back with me to Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. And we see Paul saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that they would be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards those of us who believe? I pray that you get a handle on this. Why? Why does Paul need to pray this for believers? Why do we need to be aware of this for ourselves, church? Because there is a huge potential that you walked in the door this morning with issues going on in your life in which you completely forgot that you've got the power of God at your disposal and you may completely miss it because you're so absorbed with your circumstance you forget who you serve. So in verse 19, we see him saying in Ephesians chapter 1, what is the surpassing greatness of his power? There's only two Greek words that I put in your notes this morning. There's a third one, but I'm not going to get into it. But the first one I want you to see relates to this phrase that he's used, the surpassing greatness. You're going to see it on the screen as well. So greatness is this word megathos in the Greek language. If you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me use the word megas, which means great, right? And I love saying the word megas. It's huge. But megathos. So step beyond it's rooted in megas, but it goes on to this point where it's talking about something that's of strong magnitude. So begin thinking powerful earthquake, destroying tsunami, something that has the ability to alter nature's course. But we're told that that's not a big enough word here. Now, this word megathos only appears once in the entire Bible 66 books and it's recorded one time. And Paul chooses to use it right here in talking about the power of Jesus Christ. But even still, this word falls short. 
So the word surpassing is added. It's not just greatness, it's surpassing greatness. So here's the second Greek word that's in your notes, and you see it on the screen. It's this word, huperbalo. And it means to throw something beyond the mark, to excel beyond. So if you're thinking athletics, perhaps you would think of someone who can stand at at the free throw line and, and make shots consistently, that's good. But then if you go beyond that, you think of someone who's tall enough that maybe they can dunk. Well, that's good. That's, that's even better. But what about somebody who's a powerful enough player that they can slam dunk to the degree that they might even smash the backboard? That's the image between this word hooper balo, meaning going beyond what is expected, but it's not measurable. So Paul's using this expression, hyperbalo, hooperbalo, megathos, saying it's beyond measure. It's beyond your ability to grasp. It's super abounding power, meaning this. Romans fans, you pay attention to this. It's much more. It's more than enough. It's more than enough to meet the need that you came in the door with this morning. Not knowing what's going on in your world, I have no idea. But God's power is more than enough. The God who spoke the universe into existence has power far beyond any impossibility that you face today. This is going to feel like a hard shift, but just stay with me. This is why Jesus is peerless. This is why Jesus stands out among everyone from world history. This is exactly how the God-man should respond. You want these people to be silent? I've caused the lame to walk. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. I've got dead people walking, and you want these people to stop praising? (laughs) Right. If they do, the rocks are going to scream out, justice needs to be done. And they're praising me because of who I am. See, if you're looking for evidence that Jesus is the God-man, here's the billboard. Because he's saying, I put my power on display and I am deserving of the praise of mankind. Even rocks can see the surpassing greatness of my power towards those who believe. The amazing thing about Jesus, everything's amazing about him, but one of the things that really registers with me is his ability to bring together things that seem like complete opposites. Think about this with me as you think about this story. He walks in absolute, uncontested power Yet with utter humility, he saddles up on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. And he rides into Jerusalem, recognizing and knowing full well they're going to capture him, and they're going to crucify him. Yet he says to his followers the night before they capture him, if I wanted to, I could speak the word and 10,000 angels would come to my rescue. See, he balances complete opposites. We don't understand it. We can't put it together in our mind, but we find him weeping with Mary and Martha, arms around the shoulders. Their brother has just died. He's weeping for the death. And in the same moment, he says to them, if you believe, you're going to see the power of God put on display. You read the story, you'll find it exactly that way. See, what you find in Jesus is you see sovereign majesty with tender mercy. I can imagine sovereign power with absolute authority. I can put that piece together in my mind. I can imagine humility and tender mercy, but answer me this. 
Where on planet earth among men do you find the combination of the two of absolute immeasurable power and immeasurable compassion in one world leader? It's why Jesus is peerless. There's no one like him. This is what the God-man does look like. One additional thought before I show you how to lean into this power that God says is directed toward you. I want you to see what happened with the Pharisees when Jesus said, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to tell them to stop praising me. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. If they be quiet, the rocks will scream out. Look at what happens with the Pharisees in verse 19, John chapter 12. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They're so consumed with the issue in their world that things are spiraling out of control. They think people are politically moving towards Jesus. They're so consumed with that that they miss the obvious. Examine your heart right now. Is it possible that you came in here today so consumed with the issue, whatever it is going on in your life, that you completely miss the power of Jesus that is directed towards you who believe? That he wants to show himself powerful on your behalf? So how can we lean into the power of God for our circumstance? How do we get through difficult trials like job issues? How do we get through failed relationships? What about the loss of a loved one? What about if you're being persecuted for the name of Jesus? How about if you've got a debilitating illness going on right now? What do you do in the midst of that? I'm going to start with the most obvious thing, but I, I want you to be with me in this because every weekend at New Hope, there's people who are coming for the first time ever. I talked to a lady last night in the Saturday night service who had not been in a church building in 20 years. She showed up last night and she said, I, I want you to know that I not only heard what you said, but this is the first time I've heard the Word of God in 20 years. And I, I need to tell you that my heart is aligning with God. Every weekend, people are showing up here. I get notes from people online all the time who are tuning into this stuff. They're understanding what you're examining. Here's what you need to hear if you're new to church. This power of God begins with believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the great hope of all believers. Because He lives, we will live also, John 14. Because he lives, we live also. So that's why you find Paul, Romans fans again, in chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Peter steps it up a notch. Peter says, if you're a believer, old man Peter, writing back over the course of his life, looking at it, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. You who have been born again, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To do what? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and it's undefiled. See, as a result that you believe in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, something has been transferred over to you. The Holy Spirit of the living God is within you and you've been given an inheritance Now, in the Greek language, that obtained an inheritance is a a single compound word. We need multiple words to say it here, but here's the thought behind it. 
When something future was so certain that it couldn't help but happen, they wrote of it as though it had already happened. That's exactly what you see Peter doing in this first century world. He's not saying you're going to obtain it. He's saying you've obtained it. It's already yours. Even though you arrive here today, you are not in heaven. God promises it to you that you will enter heaven. We will. It's just as certain as though we're already there. So that takes me to number two. Do not forget what you already possess. Number one is important because it's the benchmark. It's where everything starts. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he was resurrected? If you believe that, you can lean into number two and remind yourself not to forget. I can illustrate this best by giving you an example from 1950 United States. A man by the name of William Randolph Hearst, if you're young enough, you're not going to know who that is, but before there was social media, there was just media, okay? And in, in media, William Randolph Hearst was like the king in the United States. He owned just lots and gobs of newspapers. He was so wealthy, he could have anything that he wanted. And he realized after looking out over his vast art collection that he was not looking at a piece that he wanted to own. It was a really important piece to him. So he hired agents to scour planet Earth. And here's what he set them out to do before he sent them out. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over the entire planet, go to private museums, public collections, any place you can find to locate this piece of art that I want for my collection. And I do not care what the price is. I need to own it. Many months later, after scouring the globe, his agents came back to him and said to him, um, Mr. Hurst, we're sorry to report to you that the piece that you want to buy has already been acquired by a collector and he will not give it up. Uh, Randolph Hearst responded with, well, who is it? I want to own this piece. And they said, well, his name is William Randolph Hearst. And you bought it some years ago and it's in your warehouse. You already own it. You just forgot what you own. Think about this church, how this relates to us. You were bought at a great price. Glorify God. Remember you were bought at a great price. Do not forget. That's why Jesus gave us communion. So we would remember what he gave us. Uh, number one, number two, and number three lead us directly into number four. No, I'm sorry, number one and two take us into number three. What you have is protected by God's power. Not by your power. It's protected by God's power. God says, I've committed to you, no matter how weak you feel this morning, no matter how many sins you might have committed yesterday or five years ago and you think you've outsinned God, God's salvation for you is powerful enough for your past, your present, and your future. Let me take you to the screen again, Ephesians 3.20. No matter how weak you feel, God says this, I'm able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So God says, you think you can imagine big things? I got news for you. You can't think big enough. God says, I can go exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or imagine. And I'm telling you, church, I'm thinking I'm like you. I can imagine some pretty big things. But God says, I can go way beyond that. Just trust me. Ultimately, we have to lean into number four. You and I have the assurance 
the assurance that no purposes of God will ever fail because he's God. We will see him accomplish his plan. Let me back this up from Scripture. You students of Romans will love this too. Romans chapter 8. It's going to take us about four more years to get there, but here it is. Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for what church? For good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Here's the last one I want you to remember. Remember the power of prayer in your life. Jesus' own words remind us that you and I are tempted to forget. That Jesus promised us that if we belong to Him, if our hearts are aligned with Him, that He will respond. It may not be the way you always want Him to respond. That's why you have to pray for God's will. But Jesus said this, His own words, Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. In that very basic verse, he's talking about salvation. But he's talking about God responding to you, responding to him. You're chasing after God with your whole heart, he's going to respond. Now here's the truth. I deal with it myself. This is what I need you to hear as we close this. Because we are mortal, we need assurance, don't we? We need guarantees. We don't buy cars without getting the person who sells it to us to back it up with some kind of guarantee. You buy a new car, you want a long guarantee. We need guarantees because we have not yet received that possession, even though we've already been told it's our inheritance. So it causes us to question. Hear this. It is God's nature to meet your need before you even ask. Some of you didn't even know what you were going to walk into this morning. You didn't know that God was going to use his word to penetrate right into the core of your heart this morning. But God knew that you needed it even before you knew you needed it. It is God's nature to meet your need even before you ask. So he gives us a guarantee. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians 1, just drift up the page to verse 13. You'll see it on the screen as well. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Church, you've been given the Holy Spirit of the living God at the moment that you believe in Jesus. So he uses this word sealed in a very deliberate way. Sealed was a validation of ownership. So if I left here this morning with you and I went out in the parking lot and I saw that you were driving a nice car and I thought, I'd like to know, do you really own that car? You could take me to your house. Hopefully you could pull a file out that would have a title in it that might say the state of Michigan on the top of it. But somewhere on that title is going to be your name, meaning you've got title deed to that vehicle. God has title deed to you. He has your name written in the book of life, meaning he owns you. Now this seal that Paul uses here is a really important word, especially as it links to the resurrection story. Because to seal something meant that the emperor stamped it. So when Pilate is put in control over the Middle East region that we call today Israel, he was given the emperor's ring to seal official documents. 
and to seal things like the tomb of Jesus. Now, a signet ring that is given to a person with power is only as powerful as the person who's using the ring who can back it up, meaning this, the, the authority of the one owning the ring is only as important as his power to impose his will. God says, I'm imposing my will. I'm putting a seal upon you. You've been sealed with the power of the Holy God, the living Spirit of God within you. So just think about how that translates to what you're going to celebrate next week. Jesus goes into the tomb. They put a stone over the tomb. Man seals the tomb. Pilate puts his ring into it, sealing that it's shut, and you better not mess with Pilate. But God says you're only as powerful as the will to impose your power. God's power blows away the stone because he breaks the seal because God does not kneel to anyone and releases Jesus from the power of death. We find this seal image very, very powerfully in a story in which Alexander the Great sends his emissary to Egypt to represent him. Alexander the Great has conquered the known world Except Egypt finds itself in rebellion. And because Egypt is in rebellion, Alexander the Great sends an emissary down to represent him. But he doesn't send an army with him. He sends him with his signet ring, the very ring that Alexander uses to seal documents. The emissary appears before the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt has amassed his entire war team behind him. All of his soldiers stand ready to execute if they need to. The emissary of Alexander says to the king of Egypt, Alexander the Great has a commission for you, O mighty king. Cease from your hostilities against Alexander and submit to his authority. Wanting to save face, the king of Egypt says in response to the emissary, tell Alexander I will consider his request. The emissary, remember, only has a ring. He does not have an army behind him. He walks behind the king of Egypt and he draws a circle in the ground, completely encircling the king of Egypt. And then he steps aside and turns back to the king of Egypt and he says, until you have given me your response, do not leave that circle. The king stands silent because he knows that Alexander can bring the hordes of a world power against him. He turns to the emissary and says, tell Alexander he has his command and steps out of the circle and walks away. The power of the seal of God is upon you and God says in a much greater way because he is the God of the universe. He has put his seal upon you and he says, that one is mine. No one can touch it. You, New Hope Church, are God's own possession. Eternally, you belong to Him, regardless of what's going on in your life. So I need to lean back into Ephesians 1.19 to close this out one more time because this is really directed towards us. We're told it's directed towards us who believe. Ephesians 1.19, you see it on the screen. The surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe it's directed at you. Do you notice what he's not praying for? 
He's not praying that power would be given to you. He's asking that we would recognize that we would gain awareness of what we already possess in Jesus Christ. See, the supreme desire of the Bible is that you would understand your identity. That you would understand who you are. You are no afterthought. God chose to save you eons before you existed. And when you know who you really are, you can live like who you really are. See, I suspect that the reason you find so many Christians, American Christians especially, afraid to speak for the name of Jesus is because they're not really sure of who they are. They're not really sure that God has redeemed and saved them. And they're not feeling very confident about their witness because if you know who you really are, who you belong to, you can live like who you really are. You want to live fearless today? You want to live fearless no matter the circumstances? Understand that your life is anchored in the power of the living God. He has you for eternity. He has you, church. How great is our God. He stands on a dusty road. People are screaming around him, Jesus for president. Tell them to shut up. <laughs> really? Because if they stop, you're going to see nature uncork. The stones will scream because justice will be done. He is the living God. And his name is above every name. The Lord our God is not just above. He's far above everything, everyone, every circumstance you come against. Above all rule, all authority, all dominion. Do you believe it today? God says, that's who I am. Live like you believe it. Trust Him for His power in the midst of your circumstance. You got a relationship issue? You got a job complication? You've got yourself facing whether or not you should give to the building program here at New Hope? Thinking maybe I don't have enough money for that. God says, who do you trust? Who's working through you? Who do you believe in? Let me, let me end where I started, New Hope. And you can close your eyes and just listen to this. Or you can read along on the screen, but here's what I want to do just to end this. Ephesians 1.18 through verse 23, complete context of what Paul was talking about. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Somebody say amen. Our culture desperately needs what you have examined this morning. They desperately need a biblical perspective of God. I'm, I'm told by those who do surveys that 
they talk to people about things like this around Easter week, and this is how most of America responds. Most of America says, if someone would ask me to church, I would gladly go. Nobody wants to show up by themselves. Everybody wants someone to draw them in. So think about who's in your world this week. Who do you know that needs to learn about the power of God? Because this is just part A, right? I'm just amping up for next weekend. Part B, the power of God as he blows the stone off the cave. Think about who you know that needs to learn about the power of God. How can you exercise that in your week today, maybe, maybe tomorrow? How about you be bold enough to step out and trust God that you're going to invite somebody, even though you're going to get a fast heart rate and your butter butterflies are going to build up in your stomach because you're afraid you might offend your friend? God says, I got this. When you talk, I speak through you because you're speaking on behalf of the kingdom. I know you hear me quote 2 Chronicles 16.9 a lot. Um, so I'm going to use it here, but um, if you're tired of it, just suck it up, okay? <laughs> the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. God wants to show himself powerful in your life. Let's pray. Father, I believe that these individuals, every man, woman, student, child gathered together, those who are online, are strengthened through your word. You have promised that it's alive, that it's active, that it's sharp, and that it does things. God, I believe that you have done things. You've not only opened our heart up, but you've moved us to respond. So Father, I pray for these as we step out into this world today and we take it on tomorrow, perhaps in an office environment or a job site or maybe in our neighborhood, God, that we would be bold on your behalf. Cause us to speak of the name of Jesus, knowing who we are and that you have bought us at a great price and therefore we glorify you. We pray for your strength, for your might, for your courage, and the ability to remember. Father, we pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.